You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 14th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. The Briefing is brought to you in association with Alliance Partners. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Marcus Hippie. Coming up on today's program. I know there have been questions and concerns about this, but there is no, again, no indication of aliens or extraterrestrial activity with these recent takedowns. The saga of the suspected Chinese spy balloons continues in the U.S. As the military says it has recovered critical sensors from the downed objects, we'll have the latest. Then NATO defense ministers gather today to discuss the future of the alliance and how to strengthen it. We'll also get the latest business news with Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. And Fernando Augusto Pacheco is here to review the day's papers. What do you have for us, Fernando? Hello, Marcus. Today we talk about lightning dangers in Rio and why dogs are getting sick in New York. More from Fernando a bit later. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Marcus Hippim. The sensors from the Chinese balloon shot down over the U.S. have been recovered from the Atlantic Ocean. The FBI is now examining the items which the USS were used to spy on military sites. The U.S. has shot down another three objects since the beginning of this month. Joining me on the line for more is Scott Lucas, adjunct professor at the Clinton Institute, University College, Dublin. Good afternoon. Scott, these sensors have been found. Is too early to try to predict how much information the FBI can retrieve from them? Well, I think we can gather that there'll be quite a bit if the sensors are undamaged and if you can, you know, not only pick up on them, but also the nature of any camera that was being used on the spy balloon. Yeah, you can pick up quite a lot because you can effectively then see what the Chinese were trying to see on this cross-country path with the balloon, including a flight path that went Uh, close to several important American military bases. And you also can see the technology that the Chinese are using. Is it technology that has been lifted from the West? Is it technology that the Chinese have developed uh, domestically? Uh, Is this truly an advance on what the Americans would have if they chose to put up spy balloons or another country would? Yeah, there's quite a lot of potential here. Now, the U.S. believes this balloon was indeed used for spying, but what kind of information can a balloon provide that satellites cannot? I think the biggest advantage, Marcus, is that the nature of a satellite is is that while it can take high-resolution imagery, pinpoint imagery, it doesn't remain over a specific point for long unless it's a dedicated geospatial satellite, and most satellites are not. A balloon moves moves much more slowly than a satellite, so it can take more images. It can get more photographs, and at the same time, it can also carry interception equipment to pick up on conversations. Um, you know, signals intelligence. So that's the reason why you might want to use a balloon to complement, not replace a satellite if you're trying to surveil sensitive American sites. Scott, do you think there's any chance that this would have been a weather device that had gone astray, as Beijing has claimed? No. I'm just going to be blunt about this, because the first reason why I say that is is that uh, there's a directional motor 
on this balloon from what we know. And a directional motor means that you're not just simply going astray. It was taking a very particular path and it was basically being propelled on that path. Secondly, it just so happened that that path, as it moved from Alaska uh, into the continental United States, it went very close to one of the most sensitive U.S. sites uh, for North American air defense, NORAD, in Montana. It then went to Kansas near other strategic American sites, including Strategic Air Command. So if this was a weather balloon that was being wayward, it was being wayward in a very interesting coincidental fashion that just happened to take it to some very high-value targets. Now, how much do we know at the moment about the other three objects the U.S. has shot down so far? What is interesting that it's it, it sounds like they were different. They they didn't look like balloons like this first one. Yeah, we don't know enough to establish what they are, and we certainly don't enough to say that it's ET returning to the United States, um, as we've been hearing in your introduction. Um, what we know is that the objects are smaller than the Chinese balloon that significantly the objects do not appear to have the surveillance equipment that the Chinese balloon had, and they don't appear to have the directional, in other words, uh, the motorized device for the propulsion that the Chinese balloon had at this point. And if that stands up, and if the Pentagon is being straightforward with us, that would tend to indicate that, no, this is not a Chinese spy balloon. And indeed, these objects might not even be Chinese in origin. There is a huge amount of curiosity at the moment. This this new story is, is 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 taking over a huge number of headlines around the world. What kind of pressure does the White House feel at the moment to try to offer some more information, some more clarity, some more explanations? Well, I think the important thing for the the Biden administration, whether it's the civilians, whether it's the military, is just to clearly establish. First of all, what they've got on their hands. So, of course, they're establishing, as we discussed at the start of this interview, exactly what type of technology the Chinese were using. They're establishing what these other objects are, whether they do pose any type of threat other than simply being in airspace used by civilian passenger jets. And they're assessing what their response will be to this. So I, I, I think, you know, they've got to go through that. I think, in a way, uh, the white noise around this, including the white noise about UFOs, which has been sparked a bit by some very loose comments, such as the general saying, we're not ruling anything out. I think the Biden administration is quite happy with that because I think all the loose white noise at this point sort of takes away from what the serious nature of this affair could be and the attempt to make sure that it doesn't lead to a US-Chinese confrontation. Exactly. How bad does this look like? First of all, this first balloon, it took quite some time for it to get shot down. And then soon after that, we got this information from 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 the US that, oh, by the way, they have three other objects flying over there as well that will be shot down. Yeah, I, I think, you know, what they've had to acknowledge is, is that they had a gap in US surveillance. Um, and this gap in U.S. surveillance, I can understand it because most American radars would be directed at satellites, and satellites fly much far higher than balloons do. Satellites are much bigger than balloons are, and so the Chinese had a window, as it were, where they could fly these balloons and hope that they would not uh, remain undetected. So when the Biden administration went back over what had happened, that's when they established, yes, this is not the first time the Chinese had flown a balloon, the one that was shot down. They had done it on at least four occasions during the Trump years. Uh, and there had been other objects which had been de detected off of Hawaii, off the U.S. West Coast, which could have been Chinese balloons. So you've got to repair that gap. You've got to adjust your surveillance 
if the Chinese try it again and to establish the extent of the program. And that's what they're doing right now. Um, so I, I don't think this is a huge political embarrassment for the, the Biden administration in terms of what the Republicans are trying to do, because at the end of the day, you know, the Chinese got caught. They got caught red handed. The Biden administration responded. And that appears to be a fairly responsible response at this point. If we get a confirmation that all these four flying objects did indeed belong to China, what would happen after that? How serious would that be? Well, I, I think, again, the, the onus is on the Chinese that they're going to have to row it back. Uh, right now, they're throwing a lot of disinformation around. Oh, well, you know, the Americans, they've got their own spy balloons over China, which is not correct. The Americans rely on satellites and on aircraft that operate over international territory, but that can actually have the range to see what's happening inside China. Uh, the Chinese are trying to figure out what their explanation is going to be after the weather balloon story fell apart. And meanwhile, the Chinese are going to have to figure out what to do in the fact that these very important high-level talks, uh, which involve Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, that Washington postponed this. Uh, I will tell you that there are track two talks which are going on right now, uh, between the Chinese and the Americans to try to repair this. These are talks that will not be publicly admitted. In other words, I think both sides still want to, to draw some lines. They want to avoid confrontation. This includes issues like China, uh, Taiwan, the South China Sea, and includes economic issues. So at the end of the day, I don't think we're talking about a new Cold War here. We're talking about ongoing U.S.-Chinese tension. Uh, the balloon gives headlines to fuel that tension for a bit. But at the end of the day, I think both sides are going to continue to step back from any line of confrontation. Scott, thank you very much for your insights. That was Scott Lucas, adjunct professor at the Clinton Institute, University College, Dublin. It's 12.10 here in London. Here is Monocle Sophie Monad-Coombs with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Marcus. Two Dutch F-35 fighter jets have intercepted a formation of three Russian military aircraft near Poland and escorted them out. The Netherlands Defence Ministry said they were approaching from Kaliningrad, the Russian Baltic coast enclave located between NATO and European Union members Poland and Lithuania. Police in Tunisia have detained the head of an independent radio station on the third day of a wave of arrests of opposition politicians and activists. Since Saturday, numerous public figures have been held for criticising President Kais Saeed. Mr Saeed says he wants to save the North African nation from chaos. And New Zealand has declared a national state of emergency for only the third time in its history. A cyclone Gabrielle caused widespread flooding, landslides and huge ocean swells, forcing evacuations. Cancelled flights stranded thousands of people while hundreds of thousands remain without power. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thank you very much, Sophie. A two-day meeting of the NATO defence ministers has begun in Brussels. On the agenda is a further increase in support for Ukraine and Finland and Sweden's NATO applications. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg has already said it is more important that Finland and Sweden's application to join the alliance are ratified quickly than that they are ratified together. For more, I'm joined by Elizabeth Braw, research fellow. President Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Welcome to the programme. First of all, Elizabeth, the goal of this meeting officially is to is for the ministers to gather to discuss the future of the alliance and how to strengthen it. What does it take? 
Well, it, that, that is a massive question for just a, a, a summit that, or not a summit, a defence minister's meeting that will uh, last for two days. I don't think they'll, they'll uh, be able to answer that question, but what they will be able to answer, hopefully, is uh, the logistics problem that uh, Ukraine is facing um, in, in, in getting the equipment it needs, and more specifically, uh, getting am- the ammunition it needs, because as as um, everybody will know, without ammunition, uh, even the most sophisticated military weaponry is is useless. And then, as you say, Marcus, the the, the unexpected uh, logjam that has hit uh, Sweden and, and Finland with regards to the NATO, NATO application. We should remember that last summer uh, it, it was all smiles when when Sweden and Finland were officially invited to apply for for NATO membership, and and uh, since then, not much has happened because Turkey has blocked it. Let's let's talk about Ukraine first. We have so much to uncover. What exactly will these discussions entail? What do you think will be decided eventually? The NATO members need to somehow team up collectively to get uh, ammunition to, to Ukraine or specifically to get ammunition manufactured uh, at home in their countries to then get it to Ukraine. They've been donating, uh, sending lots of military equipment to Ukraine. Uh, but the, the, the unfortunate uh, reality is that or perhaps uh, it's, a, it's a reflection of the peaceful times we have had. The, uh, the reality is that they don't have enormous stockpiles of ammunition simply because they thought they would never need it. Now Ukraine needs it and, and they've given a, a large chunk of what they have. Now more needs to be manufactured. But as you know, Marcus, and, and as your listeners know, uh, we don't have um, uh, defense equipment uh, factory workers just standing around waiting to manufacture uh, ammunition just on a moment's notice. All that has to be planned and that has to happen very quickly now. And the problem is also that that our economy in, uh, across the West uh, is going very well. So we don't have a lot of unemployed people who could simply be trained uh, quickly and, and then uh, put to work in, in uh, ammunition factories. So all of that will need to be discussed between these uh, defense ministers, among these defense ministers, and then they need to go back to their defense industries and, and, and present a plan. Elizabeth, how concerned are you about the future? There's been very much focus on how much equipment, military equipment, Russia has at the moment, and for example, how many missiles it can still fire to Ukraine. But what about on the Western side? How much equipment is there left, and and, and how difficult can the situation get eventually when these conflicts may well continue for months or even years? That is indeed the challenge. So I think that the first months were relatively easy because the the, uh, Ukraine's Western friends did have equipment they could easily give, including equipment that they didn't really need all that much themselves anymore. And and the further, uh, the more the, the war has dragged on, the more they've had to give uh, of uh, the equipment that they really uh, wanted and needed uh, for themselves. And uh, we've seen countries like Estonia essentially just giving what it has and, and stripping its uh, its own uh, defense forces uh, down to, to the bare bones uh, in, in uh, solidarity with Ukraine. Um, but but that's where we are today. And uh, defense companies' order books are full uh, because... Uh, uh, all kinds of countries in recent years have been uh, beginning to uh, increase their defense spending and, and uh, buying more weaponry. So you can't just, in, in, in 
in a market economy, you can't just go to defense companies and say, now I need this and I, I need to get ahead of everybody else who's waiting. <laughs> That's not how private companies work. So there is a wait. And, and that is uh, the dilemma for, for Western defense ministers at the moment. How united does NATO seem to you at the moment? Let's, for example, look at Sweden and Finland's pending NATO membership applications. All other NATO member states have approved the applications. Hungary and Turkey haven't. That's right. So there is enormous unity within NATO regarding Sweden and Finland. I think it's it's the two countries that have received the warmest welcome uh, in the history of NATO. Everybody wants them except Turkey. And and I think it, for for Turkey, it really recognizes the benefit, the strategic benefit of having Sweden and Finland in, in NATO. But President Erdogan is also a clever um, negotiator. He knows that uh, because his and Turkey's uh, ratification is needed, he can get something in exchange for it. And and he's willing to bargain, which is what he's doing. And uh, the the stakes constantly keep shifting. So Sweden and Finland committed to certain um, steps they needed to take. Uh, they, they did that in negotiations with Turkey last summer. Then uh, when uh, Sweden, which is really the, the country he's, he's trying to block, when Sweden had fulfilled those uh, those obligations, he said, well, what about this? And and that's where we are at the moment. And now he has, of course, uh, raised the, the prospect of admitting Finland, but uh, but not Sweden. And it's really a, <laughs> a, a very difficult situation for Finland. Now, Finland has said that it will not join without NATO. But if this continues, uh, I, I could sort of see voices within Finland suggesting that perhaps we should join after all. And, and Sweden, it's really Sweden's problem. I, I don't think that will happen, but it's a clever negotiation uh, um, style that he has. And, and it keeps everybody on tenterhooks at the very delicate moment. I think it's interesting that Jens Stoltenberg did say, as I mentioned already, that it's more important that Finland and Sweden's applications to join NATO are ratified quickly than that they are ratified together. So he's hinting at the possibility that we, Finland would go first. If that were to happen, I know you think it's unlikely, but if that were to happen, how difficult would the situation be for Sweden and Finland? Finland would 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 uh, would have the the uh, a, a very easy ride into NATO. It's uh, like Sweden is already very heavily integrated into uh, NATO, including the major NATO military cooperation. So Finland would be in a very good place. Sweden would be in a very bad place uh, because it has already committed itself to joining NATO. So it wouldn't even be able to pretend anymore that it's neutral. Um, but there would be uh, no immediate timeline for it joining NATO. It, it, it did apply, like Finland, on the basis that, that the application process would be very swift because nobody likes to be in, in the uh, limbo of having applied for NATO membership without having uh, the benefits of NATO membership. That puts you in, that makes you very vulnerable. And uh, Sweden and Finland have been vulnerable now for uh, a number of months. And uh, if if this uh, splitting up of, of their accession were to uh, were to occur, then uh, Sweden would, would be uh, even worse off uh, than if, if uh, the two countries had essentially decided to to remain outside together. Um, now uh, the US and the UK have uh, declared that they will support Sweden and Finland while they are waiting for NATO membership solidarity declaration. So Sweden does have that protection, but that's hardly as as um, uh, all encompassing as as being a, a member of NATO. And of course, that's that's what. Uh, 
uh, that's a fear that, that Erdogan is playing at uh, in the hope of getting concessions from Sweden. Elizabeth Brawl there, thank you very much for joining us today. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. It's time to talk business next with Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. Hello, Ewan. We're seeing a lot of focus today on the US inflation reading. How much can you tell us? Hi, Marcus. Your expectation is that prices in the world's biggest economy rose by 6.2% in the year to January. That's a slowing of the 6.5% pace we saw in the previous month. Now, a bit of a reminder of the progress we've made so far. US inflation peaked at 9.1% back in June. So we've had now six months of slowing headline inflation. Bloomberg Economics, uh, their forecast is that the reading is going to come in a bit hotter than some of the other uh, forecasters are suggesting. Uh, Bloomberg Economics think that an increase in energy prices is going to feed through. And also we're going to see some slowing of the momentum in goods disinflation. Lots of this slowing inflation has been driven uh, by goods prices. Uh, And we could still see some robust gains in services prices. There is uh, something of a uh, Uh, of a a separating of the two parts of the US economy, if you like. Uh, Lots of demand for services, people still keen to go out and uh, buy holidays and uh, use services, go to restaurants, etc., things they couldn't do during the pandemic. But lots of uh, goods demand uh, seems to have come off. Of course, we had soaring demand for things uh, when people were sitting at home, uh, and some of that goods demand has eased off a bit. So that is feeding into the inflation story at the moment. Uh, And on the goods front, inventories have been adjusting rather faster than expected to levels consistent with demand. That means that there is less stock overhang, uh, meaning less need to cut prices or probably more likely uh, moderate price increases. And fascinating to look at what's happening in the labour market. You also see that uh, divergence of the two sectors. Uh, The labour market generally is very robust. The US economy is still creating uh, a lot of jobs. We're seeing, particularly in the tech sector, very big layoffs. We've had uh, announcements from almost all of the big tech companies that they are shedding thousands and thousands of staff but remember of course they took on loads of staff during the pandemic but generally the labor market uh, is healthy uh, and uh, other parts of the service sector uh, are doing pretty well and they're still taking on people so the economy is still creating uh, lots of jobs but fascinating to see this uh, inflation number which we'll get a little bit later today absolutely we're also seeing a jump in used car prices which is not great news when you look at inflation numbers Yeah, a shiny new car in the driveway has been an emblem of uh, middle-class prosperity for generations of Americans. But for the typical family, it is now a distant dream. Now, for a decade, the average new car payment in the US bumped along at about $400 a month. The average monthly payment now is a record $777. That is almost double the pre-pandemic level of just three years ago. Really a fascinating story. It's actually the subject of our big take today, which is a deep dive into uh, a subject. Uh, We're looking at used car prices in the US, but this isn't just a US story, actually. Uh, European prices are also flirting with records, and used car prices are also soaring in Japan last year. Of course, a lot of this happened during the pandemic. There uh, there were a lot of supply chain issues with uh, new cars, and that bumped up the prices of nearly new cars and used cars more generally. We have, particularly in the US, over the course uh, of the back end of last year, seen these prices come off their peak. But we've also just seen uh, in the last couple of months them ticking up again. And this is bad news for the Fed. It was assumed that used car inflation uh, was a sort of post-pandemic story and we were over that and the prices would gradually come down. It's not looking quite certain that that is going to be the case. And another uh, headwind coming down the road, uh, electric vehicles are about a quarter more expensive than the average car. So that shift to plug-ins 
is going to make affordability even worse. Bloomberg's Ewan Potts, thank you very much for this update. You are with Monocle 24. The Concierge from Monocle, brought to you in association with Allianz Partners, is coming soon to Monocle 24 and all good audio platforms. Just like Monocle's editors, Allianz Partners is committed to helping you build exceptional experiences whenever you're traveling. That's what makes this a perfect partnership. The Concierge program brings all the best of Monocle's award-winning and beloved coverage of travel from print and digital to the airwaves. You'll hear insider insights and ideas about where the world is heading, plus tips on packing your bags for the must-see destinations, new openings, and the loveliest spots to lay your head. So get out there and visit the places, enjoy the experiences, and meet the people changing the world of hospitality for the better. The Concierge, in association with Allianz Partners. Welcome back. You are listening to The Briefing with me, Marcus Hippi. Finally today, I'm joined in the studio by our own senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, to go through some of the day's newspapers. Fernando, we are heading to Brazil and we are heading to Rio more specifically. A very interesting story from today's edition of Our Global. Absolutely. A very interesting story and, and you know, very well known among Brazilians. But Marcus, basically, if you go to Brazil, you have to watch out for lightnings. Uh, we, know, we knew that the number of lightnings in Brazil huge. I think it's the second country in the world with the highest number of lightnings only after Congo. But because Brazil is more populated, there are quite a lot of accidents. And the reason we're talking about this, yesterday, Christ the Redeemer, a lightning literally fell on the head of the Christ. Uh, it happened six times a year, but this time it looked very photogenic. There's a wonderful picture uh, in most of the Brazilian uh, headlines here. But also, it's kind of a serious story because I was reading the piece. In the moment month of January alone, there's been an increase of 33% of lightnings in the city of Rio. We're talking here about Rio because the paper is from Rio, but this is something that happens uh, across Brazil. And they're doing a lot of studies to understand why this is happening. And of course, I mean, climate change has something to do with it because there's more storms uh, as well uh, in the country. What do the figures look like? How many people get injured or even die because of lightning? You know, they are not mentioning the deaths, but it does happen quite often. So only last Wednesday, uh, a man died after being hit by a lightning. And, and it's it's saying there, if you are hit directly by a lightning, it's a low probability, but you will die. There's no chance uh, of surviving. Uh, so actually, the paper was also doing, how can you protect yourself? So if you are in the car, stay in the car. Mm-hmm. It's the best way to survive. Uh, or if you can stay at home, but you know, don't be close to a washing machine or television. Don't leave your mobile charging as well. So, you know, there there are quite a lot of precautions there. Did you know these things before you read this article? Because I think it's interesting that in my home country of Finland, people kind of get educated about those things. I could have added to the list also, don't go and stand under a tree if it starts raining, because if it's going to be hit by a lightning, then you will be kind of getting your share of that as well. Yes, it does say actually on the list, don't stay under a tree. And most importantly, which is very hard for me, don't go and swim in the sea. I love swimming in the rain. But, and I remember my mother say, say, Mom, I want to stay in the sea, even if, it's, if, even if there's lightning. But now, I think I'm an adult, I think I will be more aware. We're leaving Brazil now, we're continuing with a story from today's edition of the New York Times. 
It's a sad story from New York City. It is quite a sad story. I mean, a lot of dogs are getting sick from discarded weed. And the reason for that, Marcus, in New York since 2021, the recreational use of the drug, you know, has been allowed. So, of course, there's been more of it in the city. Uh, But it's interesting. For example, you see one of the first paragraphs of the story. The owner was seeing the head of her dog, uh, Bobo. uh, And then she realized the dog was stoned. Oh, no. Uh, Yeah, it, it, it is actually quite sad because... Before, uh, some veterinarian here was saying this used to happen like once a month. But now you see a lot of calls daily, in fact. There's been a huge, uh, it's a huge problem in the city of New York and I presume in other cities where recreational use is allowed as well. But, you know, what I'm trying to say here, and I think the article as well, is not that we should uh, prohibit again, but I think people should be a little bit more careful um, as well with their use. And it's not just uh, cannabis itself. It's other kind of cannabis-related products, Mm. Marcus, as well. So I'm reading what probably happened to the dog. Uh, there's a dog called Dazzle in this article as well. Um, um, if if you if your pet eats cannabis, it's likely that the pet will appear a bit wobbly and yes. will have some difficulty balancing and walking. Sometimes you also may may notice something going on with its eyes. Um, why do people leave cannabis lying around? I mean, it, 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 because I think people, you know, people are just, they, they, they just throw trash in the streets. And I think cannabis is just another product. But this one is actually causing problems to the dog. The good thing here, apparently most dogs recover. Sometimes they lose a little bit their brain cells. But, you know, but most of the how time... How much? How, how big part of brain cells are we talking about? A, a little bit. There might be some neurological problems here. But uh, most of the time they recover. But please, people, if you are using weed or cannabis, you know, throw it in the garbage, in the trash or whatever. Uh, You know, don't leave it in the streets. Fernando, it's... On another note, it's Valentine's today, which is actually in, actually interesting because over here in the UK and and in America, it's all about love. But actually, in Finland, for some reason, we know it, we know it as Friends Day, and that's when you send postcards to your friends, for example. Oh. You may even bring flowers to your friends. But over here, we're under this romantic curse. So, what does that mean for the film industry? First of all, I appreciate that in Finland. I love this idea of a Friends Day. But yeah, I'm not a big fan of Valentine's Day as well, Marcos. And actually, in Brazil, we celebrate it on the 12th of June for commercial reasons because now it's close to carnival season and you don't want to be like all cuddled up together watching TV. I mean, think, I think people want to party. Uh, but the thing is, in the cinemas, what are you going to see? I think the two biggest films at the moment is the re-re-release of Titanic. It's once again back in the screen. I mean, for some, it's an iconic film. I, I quite enjoy it. I remember back in 1998. Eight, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, and of course the third installment of Magic Mike. But I did a, a very quick list of the films I think you should be watching instead, uh-huh. and I think you might like Mark, especially if you don't like Valentine's Day. Okay, I think we should all be watching Les Mépris by Godard. It's a stunning film. It's a portrait of a relationship falling apart. Mm-hmm. But I think you learn quite a lot, and it's visually stunning as well. Um, I put here on my list Basic Instinct, one of the best erotic. It's thrillers. really romantic. It's not romantic at all, but. I I think that's the whole point. I Basic Instinct 2 is even more romantic. Oh yeah, actually, that, that's bad. Even, even I have to admit that. But if you want a romantic comedy, okay, I'll give you that. My Best Friend's Wedding with Julia Roberts, mm-hmm. where she tries to sabotage the wedding of her uh, best friend, which in fact she's in love with. Fernando, basing on this discussion, we should also share a magazine recommendation with our listeners. I, I, I heard that you had discovered a new magazine. What's it called? Well, I think you're obsessed with that one, Marcus. It's called Jerry, right? Which is Now, uh, there's another magazine as well, actually. 
Oh God! I think it's called Good Good Divorce. Oh yes, Divorcing Well magazine. Yes, yes. Actually, listeners of the stack, hopefully soon I'll get the editor of Divorcing Well. What was it called again? Divorcing Well. Excellent. Monaco's Fernando Augusto Pacheco there. And that's all for today's edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Carlotta Ribello. Our researcher was Andre Nicola Pamintu and our studio manager was Nora Hewell. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time at midday here in London, 7am in Toronto. I am Marcus Hippie. Goodbye and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.